Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. We are in our summer of abdominal angst. We are going through this big list of all of the abdominal pain, can't miss diagnoses. We've covered our first two of the quadrantes last week, appendicitis and diverticulitis. And let's round out that subcategory of life threats and important diagnoses this week. And we're going to be talking about biliary stuff in the right upper quadrant and then the pancreatitis which is kind of, you know, it's like epigastrum, left upper quadrant, a little arbitrary, but that's what we're talking about this week, biliary pancreatitis. Let's go. Hello, Dr. Olson. I have a 48-year-old male with a past medical history of diabetes, obesity, and appendectomy. No other abdominal surgical history who presents with abdominal pain. He describes it as a severe, sudden onset right upper quadrant abdominal pain that started a few hours ago and radiates around to his back. He has not had any fevers, vomiting, urinary symptoms, or any other complaints. Vital signs are all within normal limits. On exam, he has focal tenderness over the right upper quadrant, but otherwise a benign abdomen. He has a negative Murphy's sign. He has no CVA tenderness. It sounds like simple biliary colic, to be honest, but we need to rule out cholecystitis, pancreatitis, and acute coronary syndrome. For my testing plan, I would like to get a CBC, a BMP, liver function tests, lipase, EKG, troponin, and a right upper quadrant ultrasound. And for my treatment plan, I would like to get him four milligrams of IV Zofran, four milligrams of IV morphine, a liter of fluids, normal saline, and let's keep them NPO for now. All right, so this week, the upper quadranties, the biliary diagnoses. Let's start with biliary. And so I think that the most important thing here, because I've worked with attendings that got this confused, for real, let's go over our biliary disease terminology. I really think that this is one of the most important things that you need to get straight as a medical student. So first off, biliary colic. A gallstone, so you had a gallbladder with gallstones in it, and a gallstone rolls out of that gallbladder, and it rolls through either the neck of that gallbladder or the cystic duct, which connects the gallbladder to the common bile duct. And as that stone scrapes and squeezes through there, and then through the common bile duct, and then the pancreatic duct, it causes what's called biliary colic. It's biliary colic over the course of, let's say, five hours as it's, it's, it's working its way through. If that stone, okay, so that's biliary colic. If that stone gets caught in the neck of the gallbladder or in that cystic duct that connects that gallbladder to the main common bile duct, it causes cholecystitis, just like appendicitis. That stone gets wedged in there, and what happens is is pressure kind of builds up behind it, and it causes inflammation of the gallbladder itself. So that's cholecystitis. So just like an appendicolith gets wedged in the neck of the appendix, and the pressure increases, and you get inflammation, and you get appendicitis, with cholecystitis, a stone gets caught in that cystic duct, and it, you know that pressure builds up. The same thing causes cholecystitis. And so when this happens, this is important to understand, the liver can still drain all of its bilirubin out fine. That common bile duct is still wide open. That stone is stuck in the cystic duct which is an offshoot of that common bile duct. It's just that the gallbladder itself can't drain to the common bile duct through that cystic duct, if that makes sense. Go to your anatomy book if you need to review some of this, because I had to. I, I hope I don't even get this wrong, because I'm super nervous. This is complicated, right? 
But now, let's say if that stone makes it past and through the cystic duct, but it gets trapped then as it's working its way through in the main common bile duct, that main duct that drains from the liver. Now everything is backing up. All of that bilirubin is backing up. The liver itself can't drain. And what you see are those liver function tests starting to bump. When that gallstone is stuck in the common bile duct, that's cholecholithiasis. That is a stone in the common bile duct. And to take it one step further, if that cholecholithiasis gets super infected while it's wedged in there, that's what causes ascending cholangitis, which is really bad. If that stone, now to continue though, let's say that stone makes it through the cystic duct and it makes it through the common bile duct and it makes it further into the pancreas and the pancreatic duct, that last little turn, let's call it, it causes gallstone pancreatitis. So now neither the liver nor the pancreas can drain and that's why we always check lipase and LFTs in these biliary complaints. So you got biliary colic, cholecystitis, cholecholithiasis, ascending cholangitis, and gallstone pancreatitis. Got it? So you need to get this straight before you'll, you will be confused forever, okay? All right, so now let's do our history, our exam, our testing plan, and our treatment plan for biliary stuff. Let's start with our history. Now, most people with gallstones, they're asymptomatic. I eat so much pizza, you guys. I bet my poor gallbladder is just riddled with these little gallstones, but I've never had any symptoms of it. What you will see, though, is eventually, is that if one of those gallstones passes, that's going to cause an episode of biliary colic. So it's one to five hours, classically, Tinelli's manual kind of sets those numbers of severe crampy, but continuous right upper quadrant and epigastric abdominal pain, frequently radiating around to that right shoulder blade, maybe some nausea and some vomiting. What's interesting with biliary colic is for some reason, it, it seems to happen a lot after fatty meals, um, though not always. And for some reason, it seems to happen a lot right after people go to bed and then it wakes them up right after they go to sleep. That's biliary colic. If the pain lasts more than five-ish hours, though, now you start to get worried that it might be stuck somewhere. Does that make sense? And if it gets stuck, it might start to cause inflammation. So you might start to see fevers, chills. But overall, it's, it's the same location. The, the main distinguishing factor is how long these, these symptoms have lasted. And then obviously, if you develop fevers and stuff on top of it, that's concerning. On exam. The big exam thing that you want to put in your presentations, besides just palpating the right upper quadrant, is specifically something called the Murphy's sign. So what you're going to do is you're going to take your fingers and you're going to push them under the, the right side of the ribs. You're going to actually push underneath those ribs and you're going to feel underneath of them, almost like you're trying to push your fingers all the way down, like almost around those ribs. And that's where your gallbladder sits. And you're going to have them take a deep breath. And as you do that, the diaphragm pushes the gallbladder down against your fingers, and it's, if it's inflamed, if they have cholecystitis, the idea is that they stop inhaling because it increases their pain. So they're having a certain amount of pain because you're pushing in their right upper quadrant, and then they breathe, and the pain gets worse. 
And sometimes this, you won't see this in books. I like to try kind of, I'll actually do it on the left side first as a control and I'll push my fingers all the way down underneath the ribs and have them inhale. And that's kind of my control, my control exam. So I can compare sides and get a good idea if there's a difference on the right side. That's a positive Murphy sign. That's very specifically concerning for cholecystitis. Another thing you might see on exam is jaundice. And so jaundice is that increase in bilirubin, right? You're seeing the bilirubin. And that is concerning that that what that means is that this stone is basically caught either in that common bile duct or in that pancreatic duct, okay? So you don't typically see jaundice with cholecystitis. You see jaundice with cholecystitis or with gallstone pancreatitis. Obviously, it takes a while for enough bilirubin to back up to cause jaundice, but every once in a while, you do see it. And the last thing on exam that I want to cover here, there's some very specific, there's good pimp material here. The other thing that I want to cover here is Charcot's triad. It's called Charcot's triad. So that's when you have fever, jaundice, and right upper quadrant abdominal pain. And when you see all three of those, that's very concerning for ascending cholangitis, fever, jaundice, and right upper quadrant abdominal pain. That's called Charcot's triad. And Reynolds' pentad is like a severe version of that that adds in hypotension and altered mental status. That's for ascending cholangitis. Now let's move on to our testing plan. So CBC and electrolytes, we're getting that with most abdominal complaints. But with the upper quadranties, you need to add liver function tests and a lipase. Those are the labs that you need to add, LFT and lipase, and sometimes a urine too. Because think about it, the kidney is kind of up in that region as well. But again, think through your five biliary diagnoses, and you're going to understand why we need these specific tests. Biliary colic, uh, that just is pain. It goes away on its own. But if persistent symptoms that don't bump the LFTs or lipase, that's probably, you know, that could be cholecystitis with a stone stuck in that cystic duct. The liver can still drain all of its LFTs through the common bile duct. If you see a bump in the LFTs, that's when you start getting concerned for cholecystitis, a stone in that common bile duct. And if you see elevated LFTs and lipase, it's not just the common bile duct that's blocked, but also probably down near that pancreatic duct because that lipase can't drain. That's gallstone pancreatitis. But all of this to say is you need to get a lipase and some LFTs with right upper quadrant abdominal pain, okay? And then the last thing is we need to talk, our Im talk about our imaging. So the, the classic answer for appropriate imaging and that you should still be using on your clerkship is that if you are concerned for a biliary issue, such as cholecystitis, cholecystitis, you want to get a right upper quadrant ultrasound. And what you're looking for, if like, let's say when you're looking at the gallbladder, you're looking for a thickened wall or maybe some surrounding uh, fluid around that gallbladder wall. That is evidence of cholecystitis. You can also see the common bile duct. And so if you measure this, you can tell if it's blocked because it'll, it'll stretch out and that would be consistent with something like cholecystitis. The only caveat I will say to this right upper quadrant ultrasound being your test of choice is that a CT, though it's not necessarily the best answer, it's really good for this stuff as well. And so sometimes what you'll see is like, if you're like, oh, I don't know if I should get a CT or an ultrasound, they're kind of tender all over, maybe a little bit right upper quadrant. The CT is still pretty good. So you'd, you'd get the CT and then maybe consider the ultrasound, but you don't necessarily have to always get both of them because the CT is pretty good for gallbladder stuff. I've actually had surgeons who I got an ultrasound that was kind of equivocal for gallbladder stuff and they said, get the CT. And then the CT showed uh, cholecystitis. So CT, it, though it's not the classic answer, 
it's still not like completely useless for gallbladder things, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And then last year, treatment plan. So pain control, right? Nausea control, fluids, all reasonable things that those types of things that you're putting in your initial presentation, right? Morphine, sofran, some fluids, all reasonable. But here's the big idea though. Biliary, biliary colic, it can go home. You just need surgical follow-up. It gets better on its own. Usually while in the department, all of a sudden they're like, I feel great. And you're like, their abdomen's not tender. You're like, you must have had an episode of biliary colic. You had some gallstones on this ultrasound. Um, and you follow them up with surgery. And a lot of times they'll get their gallbladder taken out on a scheduled basis. If the patient has resolved symptoms, they look good. Maybe a few stones in the gallbladder on ultrasound, but the wall isn't thick. There's not fluid around it. The bile ducts are normal size. LFTs and lipase are okay. These patients get surgery, follow-up, return precautions, and an elective cholecystectomy. But if there are any of these other four diagnoses, so cholecystitis, cholecystitis, ascending cholangitis, or gallstone pancreatitis, it's an admission every time. And it's the same antibiotics as last week. These intra-abdominal antibiotics you see, Zosin. Unison. Probably another one you see kind of more with gallbladder stuff is ceftriaxone and flagyl. But this patient needs antibiotics. And then here is the kind of the overall, this is the one last thing you need to pay attention to. Surgeons take out the gallbladder. They do cholecystectomies. They go snip, snip at the cystic duct and they pull out the gallbladder done. So cholecystitis is a surgical disease and it needs a surgical consult to take out that inflamed gallbladder. But the rest of the biliary system is not that straightforward. If the patient has cholecystitis, cholangitis, gallstone pancreatitis, a stone stuck in that main biliary drainage pathway, that common bile duct, this is actually a GI consult. Because what GI will do is they do the, the ERCP. I'm not even going to try to say it because I'm not smart enough to say the full thing. ERCP, where they, they go backwards and they try to open up that common bile duct and take out that stone. So not all biliary complaints are a surgical consult. Depending on where that stone is, your primary consult might actually be GI, if that makes sense. And I know this is a lot. But again, I think what makes biliary and right upper quadrant stuff so hard to learn is kind of the terminology and the specific diagnoses and keeping those straights. It's really a, a disease where you have to have a good knowledge of the anatomy of the biliary system. But once you get that down, the rest of it's going to click pretty easily. The rest of it's not that hard. And then to wrap up this week, though, our final quadranty diagnosis is pancreatitis, and it can be caused by gallstones, gallstone pancreatitis, we just talked about that, but it can also be caused by alcohol, it can be caused by high cholesterol, it can be caused, a whole bunch of different medications can cause it. It can also happen after like a severe systemic insult, we call it, right? So if they have like a horrible trauma or a bad burn, a lot of those patients will get pancreatitis. You will also see a lot of people with chronic abdominal pain, chronic pancreatitis. Um, you see a lot of that. So history, what you're going to see is patients who have constant epigastric pain and classically radiating through to the back and a lot of vomiting. That's the classic historical, that's what they're complaining of. Oh, my, my epigastrum is like, they, they use the word boring is like the one the books say, and it's just like due to my back, blah, blah, and they're vomiting, right? On exam, it can range. So some pancreatitis, especially these kind of mild chronic pancreatitisers, have a little bit of epigastric pain, and that's it. But true 
acute pancreatitis, these patients can get horribly sick. They can get deathly ill, organ failure. Bad pancreatitis looks a lot like sepsis or septic shock. You're getting fever and tachycardia and hypotension and altered mental status. But it's that on exam, it's really that epigastric area that you're focusing your examination on. You see lots of, you can see some abdominal distension with this, but it's tenderness kind of over the epigastrum. Not too much though to really worry about on exam other than just pain in that region. Testing plan. So besides your CBC and BMP and liver function, again, you need to get a lipase. A lipase is your key lab test for pancreatitis, a lipase. And also a CT scan. A CT scan is not necessarily required with an elevated lipase in classic symptoms in an otherwise well-appearing patient. But for your clerkship, you're Again, almost with all of these quadrant-based diagnoses, you always want to be recommending to get a sort of, of some sort of imaging. And with pancreatitis, again, it's going to typically be a CT scan. If you think about it, how are you going to ultrasound a pancreas when you got your stomach there, which is filled with air? You don't see anything. So it almost always has to be a CT scan. And this is very important for another reason. For your diagnosis of pancreatitis, you need two out of three of these to officially diagnose pancreatitis. So you need a classic history and exam, right? So like, oh, uh, you know, like my epigastrum, it's going through my back, blah, I'm vomiting, blah, right? The second thing that you need is a lipase. The second thing that you can have, I should say, is a lipase that's two to three times your lab cutoff. So it's not just a smidge above the cutoff. It's actually almost, you know, two times the cutoff. A truly, this is an elevated lipase, right? Um, and then the third thing is imaging findings consistent with pancreatitis. And the most common you're going to see is some stranding around the pancreas on your CT scan. Although certainly you can see complications from it as well, pseudocysts and bleeding and you know, like I've seen a patient with like hemorrhagic pancreatitis once and they were super sick, but you need two out of three of those history and exam, lipase and imaging findings. You need two out of three to call it. This is acute pancreatitis. And when you do, this is your treatment plan. So first of all, except in chronic pain patients where you're going to be using kind of non-opiate therapies with acute pancreatitis, when it's not just chronic pain, you need to aggressively treat that pain and that nausea and give these patients lots of fluids. You make these patients nothing by mouth and you're just supporting them basically. But what you're trying to do is you, you, the key is to kind of try to advance their diet over time. So basically you make them nothing by mouth, you're getting them fluids, you're getting them pain medicine, nausea medicine. Then you see if you can get them to drink a little bit of fluids and then maybe you know, a little bit more fluids. You try to slowly advance their diet. If the CT showed a complication, like something like a pseudocyst or an abscess, you're going to give antibiotics as well. But generally speaking, pancreatitis is very much supportive care. With mild pancreatitis and these sort of chronic pancreatitisers, if you are able to control the symptoms and they otherwise look well, these patients can actually go home. Uh, not every pancreatitis patient needs to be admitted, but if they look bad and it's like a real acute pancreatitis, they almost always get admitted. You are doing like strong and aggressive control of their symptoms. So lots of pain medicine, lots of fluids, lots of nausea control and you're going to admit them. And usually it's either a GI or a surgical consult. And remember, some of these patients uh, on the on one end too can get horribly ill and they need the ICU and they need intubation. You know, I, I gave the example of my patient who had hemorrhagic pancreatitis. It was just horrible, horrible pancreatitis. They were super sick. Um, 
pancreatitis really is this, it's very much a range, even more so than like diverticulitis. You can have like super mild, like I always have pancreatitis to like death's door pancreatitis and it's this spectrum of care in between. But the, the core of your care is always pain control, nausea control, fluids, NPO, but maybe slowly advance their diet and, you know, plus or minus antibiotics and admission, if that makes sense. That wraps up our upper quadranty life threats. That wraps up, we've covered all of the quadrant, main quadrant life threats so far. So, so far we've covered four critical diagnoses to know for abdominal pain, appendicitis, diverticulitis, the biliary stuff, and pancreatitis. And we're going to keep going on with this through our summer of abdominal angst here. But while I'm working on putting together our next group of life threats, the bowelies, just to break it up, I'm going to put out another PD interview. I have a few of these PD interviews kind of backed up. So we'll do main medical center next week. And then after that, though, our summer of abdominal angst is going to continue and we're going to do the bowelies. So good luck during your clerkship season, everybody. I hope this has been helpful for you. Until next week, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.